In this episode of the Existential Delight Podcast, I speak with James Crutides. On his YouTube channel, he releases videos which feature readings, analysis, as well as interviews, all exploring the intersection of culture, philosophy, religion, and science. We spoke for almost two hours, and I enjoyed every second of it. This is without a doubt my favorite conversation I've had on the podcast, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. We talk about corporate culture and the role of the logos in regulating communication within those environments. We also talk about our new age past, as well as much, much more. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as we did. But let me just, uh, again, before we jump into just say thanks again for making the time. I appreciate it. I know yeah. you're a dad. Um, yeah. And as a, as a dad myself, I know how difficult it can be to carve out time. So thank you. Um, yeah, likewise, man. Likewise, all the way from uh, South Africa, and I'm here in Florida, so it's it's uh, good to good to connect with you. I think there's a lot we could talk about uh, yeah. for more than two hours. So let's see if we can let's see do what it. comes up. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So, you, so you had a question about uh, my conversation with Peugeot, and I think you said the meta pattern. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was uh, I was you know watching some of your videos before our discussion here and I had watched the Jonathan Peugeot interview um, and it was, it was really great um, but I only got through half of it so I watched the full thing here today and uh, I was really it got you got him really to open up and kind of get specific of what the meta pattern is right and he started talking about it and as he was talking about it I kind of visualized a, a you know the way that you were doing the graphics in some of your other videos like visualizing the pattern you know, uh, coming into existence, right? Like you talked about, you have this duality of heaven and earth and the interaction between heaven and earth at the quilting point, at the mediating point, uh, is like the top of a mountain, right? And it's there's an eccentric and a concentric aspect to it. There's an inside, there's an outside, there's an up and there's a down, right? And he yeah. says, if you got that pattern, you pretty much got it. But what came to mind is that this pattern is multidimensional where it, it's it's... It's up, down, left, right, right? But there's also a fourth dimension to it. And I could see a video where you have complete blackness or darkness and you have these two patterns coming and then emerging like he was talking about it. It's probably a little bit more sophisticated to do it. Um, but that's something that just came to me while I was, while I was listening to that. And, uh, and I'm just curious what you think of that meta pattern. What, is, what did it mean to you? Is it useful? Is it insightful? What do you, what do you think? Um, so... That's a, that's such a great question, and uh, I, I've I've been thinking about it a lot since I had the conversation with him. Um, the the real benefit of these conversations is that um, once the conversation ends, the conversation really only begins, and you start mm -hmm. kind of mulling over everything that you talked about. And I've been mulling over that one for a while now, and I just think that in 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 what ways is it useful? Well, I think it helps contextualize yourself within the larger scheme of things, but also mm -hmm. seeing how you fit into that larger scheme. So for me, um, I, 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 I think it, this is also from the one of the Peugeot brothers, this idea that heaven and earth is reflected, the, the macrocosm is reflected in the microcosm of us as, in, as individuals. So you almost have like the mind or the psyche, uh, which is the kind of... Uh, you could think of that almost like heaven, and then you've got the carnal body, which is the earth. And uh, I was actually uh, listening to something about Lord of the Rings, where it talks about, in a way, the characters of the Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings, are archetypes for 
um, elements within ourselves. So the priest, prophet, and king uh, mm-hmm. uh, archetypes that you find in Christ. But then an mm-hmm. interesting point that was made that I never thought about was, in some sense, you also have the elf, which is the kind of spiritual, heavenly side, the kind of ethereal side. And then you have the dwarf, which is the deep, crusty, matter, earth element. So mm-hmm. both of those are there. So that meta pattern for me, kind of makes me go, okay, well, if there's a larger pl- pattern that's operating on a higher level, the the natural kind of practical, as far as it can be practical, thing that I would need to do is try and uh, embody that meta pattern in my own individual way. And then that means, okay, looking at the patterns of my own life and how they graft onto that larger pattern am I, through my actions, living out heaven on earth? And that can play out in many different ways. Everything down from the way I greet my wife in the morning to the way I treat my colleagues at work. Um, so it's it's a, a trying to constantly unify heaven and earth, which I think actually just comes back to embodying Christ, since Christ is that ultimate union of heaven and earth. So the, the meta pattern is Christ, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the way he... Uh, when he walked among us, the way he showed us what uh, how to live, if I could think about it that way. There's, there's, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm never going to actually exhaust any of these topics or say as, in, as much as I probably would want to. But just off the top of my head, that would be my immediate, my immediate response. Yeah, uh, I think you're, you're right on. I think that it's, it's something that's discernible, like. It's not like you're making an argument and I'm, I'm agreeing with it. It's like, it's like you can see the, the picture and the pattern. And I think it really um, came through in your Job video when you talked about how, uh, I love how you talked about, or how Chesterton, and, and you revealed how he talks about the Bible was built as a sort of artistic expression, right? Mm. And when there are pieces added later on, it doesn't diminish it. Yeah, it actually makes it richer and fuller. And it made me think, is that happening yeah. now? Of course it's happening now. And what is the relationship between this this pattern unfolding and YouTube discussions and what's happening currently in our in our um, in our current world, um, you know, and and Job revealed Job presupposed Christ in many different ways. So the pattern that we usually think of in a spatial temporal sense or a kind of shapes or or we might see Christ gave us the pattern, the meta pattern when it comes to human relationships, and through those human relationships you can build culture. And I think it's, uh, I'm always fighting in my head, you know, what, what is the retort against that? And I guess the retort would be, oh, you're saying that there's one particular way that has to be um, applied to everyone, it, kind of this fascist critique that's that's talked about when people talk about Christianity. And it's not that, um, but it is something like, there is a structure, there's a bare minimum. I think the Ten Commandments is a, is a part of the meta pattern, where if you have these cultural codes, these these basic functions of how we treat each other, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery. These aren't, you know, uh, these aren't meant to punish or to, or, or they're meant to show you how to build civilization and build culture through the meta pattern. So I think it's interesting to, to talk about it. Um, and, and I wonder what the political implications of, of the meta pattern are, right? And how could we use that in the, in the political sphere um, you know, there's there's many different ways to kind of to kind of come at it, um, right? Because it, you know, the way that I've seen the pattern operate in my life, and it's it always comes down to the quality of the and the nature of the relationships of those closest to me, and and even strangers. 
is that being enriched? If that is being enriched, that then you can know that the, the kind of the feedback loop is working, uh, right? So there's a way you can test this pattern and see if it's manifesting appropriately, which I think is, uh, is, is tremendous. You know, someone, I know your background is similar to mine coming from kind of the, you know, where I know you were involved in kind of the new atheist and, and exploring those ideas and philosophical and, and these types of ideas. But uh, what we're saying here is that there is the right way to do things and in doing so human beings will flourish. But that pattern is, it's hard to discern. And in these mm. days, like I, I could, I wouldn't even think, you know, six years ago, I'd be really interested in Christianity and, and, and you know, it's crazy how that happened. So what do we, what do we make of, of, of it and, and how do we use it in our daily lives and how can we think of it politically? I know that's kind of a, a kind of broad topic there. Yeah, well, it's a good topic. Um, I, South Africa is not known for its low crime rates. Let me start with that point. Um, we have a lot of crime here. Um, when I was uh, overseas, I went to Cambodia a few years ago. I was talking to one of the guys who was there. He was a British guy. We ended up becoming pretty good friends. And he said, when you're walking in the street, he was talking to a group of us. So when, you, when you're walking in the street, just keep a... And don't worry, I'm coming back to your to your question. Just keep an eye on your on your wallet. Keep an eye on your on your you know your 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 belongings. Don't be too relaxed. And he and you know we were kind of talking to each other. And then he found out I was from South Africa. And he said, "Oh, don't worry, you'll be fine. Uh, they won't get you, because every South African, every few minutes when you're walking, you tap your pants, <laughs> you check car keys, phone, wallet, and it's almost second nature. And there's this almost." Um, it's sad to say, but there's this almost unconscious paranoia that has kind of surfaced where people have a kind of default state of assuming that if I'm not careful, I will be mugged. Now, day to day, uh, is it that bad? No. I mean, I've never been mugged myself, and I know many people that never have. I know uh, very few people that have actually been in those situations. Um, but it happens. And the reason I'm telling you this is because recently in our area in the suburb I stay there was a big break-in um, there was an act you know somebody got somebody got injured and the community suddenly said okay we have to do some kind of visual policing so the the local police force the guys who literally the top members came to our community uh, there was you know uh, a, a chat group created where we could all discuss things with each other and it's it's quicker to get help via a chat group of your community than trying to get through the, to the police station and you know getting them to come out. Um, not to not to cut the police credit, uh, to not to you know not to rat on them too much. It's not it's not always their fault. Sometimes they're just overworked. They don't they can't get to every call. That's like an ambulance driver. You know you might be number nine on the list when you call. It doesn't mean the ambulance drivers are not working. It means they have too much work. So the community came together. We had this visual policing. And I remember my wife and I went to this meeting. The police were there. And we all drove something like 50 cars through our community together. And prior to that, we all met at a local coffee shop. And we all got to know each other. And for the first time, we were really starting to get to know our neighbor. And I just said to Sinead, my wife, I was like, this feels so good. <laughs> this feels mm -hmm. so right. It feels like there's something that's been missing. And of all the problems that tragedy brings, one of the benefits it brings is unity. And so we were driving through the community. We were kind of making a, 
a, a kind of visual display. It was very much a ritual, right? Like we're going to mm-hmm. drive around. We're, we're not like seeing crime just reduce, but we but we know visual policing is one of the most efficient ways to lower crime in areas, just based on uh, times this has been done in the past. And so we're performing this ritual together as a community. We're we're driving together. There's a system. There's a way to do it. And now within the community, I don't feel like out there there's just a bunch of strangers. There's just a bunch of nameless faces. I now know the people there in a completely different way. So Mm -hmm. to come back to your question, um, and this is a very small microcosmic sense of, uh, of politics, but the community needs to kind of graft onto the same relationship you have within the family, that kind of mm-hmm. knowing about one another and wanting to assist each other, obviously to varying degrees, not not as intense as you would within, uh, you know, with your with your children, for example. But mm-hmm. um, that felt to me like a manifestation of that meta pattern. It felt like mm-hmm. the spirit of Christ kind of bringing people together, uniting people through tragedy, through suffering. And so... That's just, I think, one example that I that I can kind of think of right now off the top of my head where the pattern manifested itself through our behaviors, through our um, through our actions, and that directly improved our relationships and our whole perception of the entire community. And now everybody feels safer. Uh, so that's one point. I can make maybe one additional point unless you want to jump in before I do that. Well, let me... Yeah, I do actually have a question. What is so? What does the community look like? Are you in a suburb? Are you in the city? Are you in more of a rural or, or in between? So I'm in a city, Pretoria, mm-hmm. the Jacaranda city. So there's the the kind of city as as a whole. Uh, south from south from us is 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 the kind of main city that most foreigners have heard of, which is Johannesburg. Um, and then uh, we're we're slightly north of that, Pretoria, which is still a fairly big city. Um, and then within the city, we stay in a suburb area, which is, mm-hmm. I would say, kind of middle class to upper middle class. Um, we're we're staying, you know, the the, the property we're using, uh, we're friends with the owner, so we can kind of afford to be here just because of the the discount he's giving us. But it's a fairly mm-hmm. up, it's kind of, I would say, old money, like people that have been here for a very long time, uh, passing homes down to their children. So it's it's a nice community. Um, but it's, I have, uh, I have family and, uh, so my wife's side of the family is from, um, South Africa. They're from, um, the Netherlands, but yeah. then went to South Africa, then to Canada. Um, and then here. So I have family, my wife has family. We've met them a few times that live, I believe in Pretoria, but Johannesburg definitely, or in between there. Okay. Um, and I remember them coming about maybe 10 years ago, maybe even more. And they're telling me, tell me what's been going on there. And I was like, that's the first time I've heard of what's happening in, in South Africa. And I was like, mm. so how long has it, has it been the way that it is? Um, would you say, and are you from there? Are you from elsewhere that you moved there? And how have you seen it over time? So without going into too much detail, I was born in South Africa. So I was born in Pretoria, um, pretty much raised here, but at a very young age, my dad loved to travel. So we actually moved, believe it or not, to America. Uh, we mm-hmm. stayed in San Diego in California. And that was where I, you know, I was at that age where I was like a sponge. So uh, I said the Pledge of Allegiance every morning <laughs> at school. And uh, I have very fond memories of my time there, but I was still very young. So it was... How old were you? you know, How old I think, were you? I, I, think I was probably about three when we went over, somewhere around there. And for how long? Um, 
And for how long were you here for? Three to four years. Three to four years. years? Yeah. And then we traveled again, um, but we kind of visited just a a few places. So I was very fortunate to go around to a lot of different places, but I was honestly too young to remember it. I mean, I see photographs and Mm -hmm. I have no, no real you know, working memory of those events, although there are some places that I do have a, a better memory. But yeah, so my first language is actually American English, if I could put it that way, um, mm-hmm. which is why sometimes my accent throws people off, especially here in SA. So if, if South Africans think I'm, sometimes think I'm an American, uh, but mm-hmm. Americans don't, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't think I sound like an American. Um, and then, you know, I, I'm culturally Afrikaans. So my ancestors were French Huguenots that fled France when the Edict of Nantes was revoked and the Protestants at the time had to leave. And some of them went to different parts of the world and some of them came to South Africa and they went to the Cape where they started wine farms. And then a lot of them spread to the east. Um, And there's always a little bit of uh, mystery when it comes to that ancestry, you know, as you get further back. But that seems to be the Mm -hmm. that seems to be the most likely uh, background just based on the surname and if you trace it back through time. Uh, so culturally, my 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 uh, my family were Burj. Um So mm-hmm. there's so culturally, I'm Afrikaans. I have Afrikaans traditions. I try and keep. Um, I speak Afrikaans fluently, um, but it's my second language because <laughs> again, the first language I learned was American English. But when I got back to South Africa, my my aunts and my uncles weren't going to have me. Speaking like an American, so I had to I had to learn uh, l- just learn you know by talking to people, um, and it, it's funny it's actually something I kind of rejected about myself a few years ago my Afrikaans identity, um, which mm-hmm. I think is very common like you know you kind of rebel against the identity that you feel is is kind of foisted upon you, uh, but now it's something I love it's something that I that I cherish about about myself and about the country, so that's just that's just like little bit of a background and then to answer your question like how have things changed so i'm pretty young i'm 27 so i was born in 95 um so i'm in south africa i would be considered somebody that was born free so i was never alive during the apartheid regime so i never Mm -hmm. experienced that um i never it's only stories it's only history books it's only uh people talking about things that have happened and many people in my generation, obviously, we just, it's its kind of, you know, it's not something people talk about that much either. So it's, there's a lot that's kind of been lost. Unless you deliberately go and look for the information, you won't really just, you won't hear it in a, in a conversation. Um, I wouldn't say it's completely taboo. People do talk about it, obviously, but it's... It's it's not something you'd bring up casually, <laughs> that whole mm-hmm. that whole event. Um, yeah. So when I was growing up, um, when we came back to South Africa, things have always kind of been, in terms of crime and in terms of problems within the country, they've always kind of been prevalent. I mean, I don't really remember a time, and you know, another South African might have had a different experience, but I don't really remember a time where, where things were just, you know, completely peachy. Although I don't think that's true for any country at any time, right? But but I think things have definitely, in many ways, gotten worse, unfortunately. Um, unemployment is worse. Um, crime seems to be getting worse. Although in, in at certain points, certain types of crime do go down. Of course, there are certain points where, where the GDP does improve. Things do get better in, in some ways. But sometimes it can feel like, you know, one step forward, two steps back, if I could put it that way. 
Um, right now in the country, we're having a big, a big problem with our electrical system. You know, our national mm -hmm. power grid is uh, the company that's responsible for that uh, is going through a lot of trouble. Everything, without getting into too much detail, I mean, just a mix of, just a mix of mismanagement and corruption seems to be the order of the day and the order of the last, you know, fifty thousand days or however long it's been. And and uh, as a consequence of this, I mean, I, I do think. I think you'd rather be optimistic and wrong than pessimistic and right. So I'd rather be just optimistic and look at look at what's going well. And there are a lot of great things. South Africans as a people have become very hardy. Um, we've become very resilient. Um, just I think it's I don't think people here really realize how much this is shaping our psychology. Um, mm -hmm. Although we feel although everybody does definitely feel it. But this kind of. Uh, awareness that the government is not going to save us <laughs> mm -hmm. that uh yeah. that that lack of reliance on government i think is a good thing that realization that um uh obviously not everybody's going to feel that crisis is the only thing that can save us but i obviously believe that um but at least people aren't convinced and of course there are people that are but at least more and more people are waking up to the fact that uh, look, there's 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 things that a lot of us feel government should be responsible for, but there's a lot of things that we feel we could probably do better ourselves. So so let's try and let's try and make it happen. And so people, I mean, South Africa in some ways I think is becoming one of the greenest countries, ironically, because I can't drive to work without seeing people's houses covered in solar panels. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't drive to work without seeing billboards about. Uh, completely get off the grid today and then you know and pay this this amount something you know big amount something like 40,000 rand which i'd have to convert to dollars um uh, that that amount uh you know people are willing to pay that if it means that they're off the grid and that's happening more and more and more and those, those technologies are becoming cheaper and cheaper so are there problems yes um should south africans lose their optimism their pessimism no Oh, sorry, should they lose the optimism? No, never. But I think it's deeper than optimism and pessimism. I think we need to revive patriotism. Um, Chesterton mm -hmm. has this beautiful idea in his book Orthodoxy. If I can just go off on a brief tangent quickly. Um, well, I was just gonna real quick. I'm, yeah, I was just, let me put some. Let me play something in there. I was just gonna ask you what what is what is it like to be a South African? What is, what is it that binds you as a community in general? Um, and that's something that. You know, the things that you're talking about are happening here and rapidly increasing depending on, on kind of where you live, right? Mm. So, um, and it seems like if we look at the, the meta pattern, right? So how can you discern when the pattern isn't functioning correctly is when heaven and earth aren't uh, uniting appropriately. So heaven can be like the governors, right? The plan of how the city or the country is going to operate, right? Yeah. And the earth is the people that operationalize that plan. So if the crime is going up and there's challenges, that means that there's something wrong with the pattern. So, you know, and you can point to it. So the plans, the, the, the governing tools that are being used, right, we can't keep the lights on from here and there, right? So there is, it's, it's, it's easy to discern when the pattern's gone wrong. Um, and I think the solution, and it goes to my question here, and, and I'll let you get back to your, your next point is, yeah. so what is it, what is it that binds you? Uh, is, it, is, it, is, it, is there something like pride? Is there a pride in being South African in your community? Was there in school? Did you learn civics in school? Um, you know, as a broad your framing. Yeah, so it's, it's going to be, I can't speak for, <laughs> I can't speak for any other South African other than myself, obviously. Um, but 
I do think that the emphasis has always been on this idea of the rainbow nation, on mm -hmm. the fact that diversity uh, is a strength. And I know, I know how how many people uh, push back against that idea these days, um, especially probably in the online circles that you and I are engaging in. That that phrase, diversity is a strength, um, can <laughs> can rile some feathers. But I think if you're just thinking practically, right, if if I'm really good at hunting and you're really good at making fires, then the diversity of our skills is a benefit. I mean, f obviously. So there is a, a benefit to having different perceptions and having different, uh, different uh, abilities that you can bring to the table. And there is something beautiful about you know, in South Africa, I'll be in a classroom with with people and collectively there's 11, we've got 11 official languages. So, you know, there's all these different cultural groups and tribes and peoples from all over the world that are interacting with each other. And I think in many ways we're ahead of a lot of countries in our kind of, I don't know if I could use the phrase race relations, if that's the, mm -hmm. the correct phrase to use. Um, now, are there issues of racism? Of course, uh, show me a country where there aren't, right? Um, but I think that there's, there's, um, <laughs> we've we've dealt with so we're dealing with so much, so many problems now that it's almost like we don't have the luxury to to always worry about that. Like we've got bigger fish to fry, if I could put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, so. I feel like I'm digressing. I, I want to come back to your question. So what is the thing that really unites us? I think that it's it's it, it has been probably historically uh, the desire to build a free country, um, mm -hmm. the desire to build a, a, a genuinely good democratic system, which obviously people are going to some, some people will say that's impossible. Um, I would say just because of sin, it's probably, well, it's never going to be possible to build a utopia, at least on this side of heaven. Um, but that was the kind of goal. And we had a new flag, we have a new anthem, and our anthem actually has four languages in it, and each paragraph is a different language, wow. ending in English, ending in English, which is the language that unites us all, and so we can all mm -hmm. kind of sing that language together. Although, funny enough, Afrikaans is the loudest part of the anthem because it's the vernacular of the country. Most people in South Africa speak some form of Afrikaans, interestingly. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it's that that desire to build something genuinely free and genuinely good. Um, but it takes a different mindset to end an oppressive system than it does to run a successful new system. So the kind of mindset of the country and the kind of zeitgeist and the ethos of we need to end this current system for all its, uh, with all its flaws, etc., uh, that mindset might be very good and very effective at that, but we almost need to now look at the country as a whole and say, okay, well, that's happened. What can we do now to go forward more successfully? And I think in that way, we've kind of lost... We, we, we've made a lot of mistakes. Um, and it's not just it's not just the government. it's it's on a social level, it's on an individual one to one level. Um, I could just say this briefly. It's addressing your question. Um, you know, uh, if if there's a pothole in the road in the street, I can report it to the municipality. They'll come out and they'll fix it. But what will often happen is you know somebody will have a burst pipe in their street, and then the municipality will come and fix it, but then they'll kind of leave it they'll leave the road kind of damaged, right? And mm -hmm. they kind of don't finish the job. And so you could say, well, what's, 
why does that happen? Why, you know, why isn't the pattern functioning there? Because if, if they came and fixed it perfectly and then they left and, okay, everything is good, then you could say, okay, things are, things are kind of running well. But, okay, that, the fact that my road outside is not fixed is a symptom of a bigger problem. So we go one step up in the hierarchy. And then mm -hmm. it's like, okay, well, what's that problem? What's, what's the cause of that problem? Well, the municipality, for whatever reason, is mismanaged or, or it's corrupt. It's like, okay, well, wait, what's this, what is that a symptom of? And you go again mm -hmm. up the hierarchy and you go uh, on another level of, of control within the governmental sphere. And then you can keep going up all the way to the, to the government itself. And you can say, okay, well, why is the government, why does it have a problem? What's that a symptom of? And then you ultimately eventually just get back to the individual people and then you find that the top of the hierarchy is always sin, I, I, mm -hmm. I find. So it's it's just the consequence of, of sin in my mind. It's actually one of the reasons I became convinced of Christianity, because every problem you see, you can trace back to the fault in, in our hearts, you know. Um, yeah. That, sin that, is the distorted pattern. Sin is the, the exactly. pattern distorted. That's exactly. You know, right? Exactly. And I think it's it's interesting how you can use that. Like, I, I didn't understand what sin meant. And, I re, you know, you can spend your lifetime really reflecting on what that means. But yeah, uh, it seemed like the the general understanding of it was, you know, you're you're born sick and ordered well, like as Christopher Hitchens would always would always say. And once yeah. you really get a, a look, so you have to look, you have to care enough to look at what, what does sin mean. And then it's so applicable to both your individual life, right, sin, I want to be a good father and I want to treat my family well. You're not doing that, you're sinning, you're missing the mark. You're aiming to be a good father and you fail sometimes and you aim again. So it's about uh, this reorientation, this metanoia, this aiming appropriately again, and then you're going to fall again, right? So, mm -hmm. and I think it's interesting to view with this, the story that you just told there about how to kind of reflect on the root causes of what's going wrong with, uh, you know, the government um, it's sin, right? It's sin, right? And we're, you know, we're going to miss the mark. And that's, that's, yeah. that's part of reality. It's a part of the structure reality. It's not that there's some bad people and some good. It's yeah. back into the human heart. So I think it's, uh, it, you know, in, in your conversation with, with Jonathan, I've had a couple of them and I asked them, like, what, why is symbolism coming into the world now? And he says a lot, if you have to talk about symbolism, there's a problem, right? If you have to start mm -hmm. talking about the pattern, the pattern is to be there and operate through our relationships and, and, through our world and in our world, but once you have to discern the pattern to to fix it again, I think that's uh, that's when things get a little bit tricky. But the the comforting thing is there is a pattern there, there you know, and that's mind blowing from coming from more of a relativistic philosophical mindset, right? There is the right way to do things, but that right way isn't accessed as simple as rationality provides solutions to, right? In your um, book or your uh, converse or your video on Job, um, yeah, you I think it was the title said the riddles of God are more satisfying than the solutions of man. And Beautiful. what came to me was what, paradoxes reveal the mystery, but they reveal it as a mystery. Doesn't get revealed and then you logically can make sense of it. The revelation of the mystery is still a mystery, right? yeah. but in doing so, um, you know, uh, in doing so, it's, it's something that. That is, it reveals a sort of super rationality. Right? You can call the matter pattern a sort of super rationality, uh, and it's it's interesting to you know we talk in these circles kind of philosophically, symbolically, psychoanalytically, but really it's it's applicable practically to your psyche, your relationships, and your yeah. community. I th I find that fascinating and you know uh, and something to hope for, 
Right. And uh, I've been thinking a lot about as things get a little wonky here and we see it, there's no, the way we feel in here in the States, and obviously I'm talking for myself, but the general vibe is there are no solutions. Like voting some for someone else, if you don't believe in the system of the, the vote or the way that the candidates and the way that these parties, like all of a sudden you become uh, despondent and apathetic, right? And yeah. you don't really know why. And that's why we see a lot of young people, you know, because it's like, wh- what do you do about it? What can you do about it? You look at, you know, it seems hopeless. We're sending, you know, uh, let's say your government is sending hundreds of billions of dollars to fight a war, hypothetically somewhere, right? And you're like, I don't want to do that, but I, there's nothing I can do, right? Voting doesn't work, right? So I see this, like, the, I have this weird thought that uh, the far right, you know, the January 6th right and the far left, Antifa, they are both intuiting the same problem from different spaces. Things are jacked up and, and there needs to be some kind of radical change. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think I think it's I think they're both intuiting it. Um, and the fact that these these philosophical and, and symbolic ideas are coming into the world now, I think is is uh, it, it makes me the perplexed optimist, uh, the perplexed optimist that uh, Joe was was in your video for sure. Yeah, and I, I I think that's that's a great way to put it. You know, this this idea of the perplexed, <laughs> um, because it, um, life is fundamentally paradoxical. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, you can just look at the difficulty or the hard problem of consciousness, and you very quickly realize how much of a paradox it is. And that's actually why it's the hard problem. Is because precisely because it's a paradox, right? You can't really. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't really perceive the center. Um, yeah, it's 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 interesting. I, I I I you know you mentioned Job again, and you mentioned Chesterton, and that line of the riddles of God are more satisfying than, than the solutions of man, and they always will be. Um, it's it, there's implicit in that a kind of submission, right? An acknowledgement that I really don't know. And uh, I was thinking today a lot about wisdom and. Uh, you know, the fear of God is the beginning of, of of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. And it's like, well, yeah, it's 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 uh if I if I if I if I know my my relationship to God and really really just how little I know, then I'm gonna find wisdom by just acquiescing. Um and it's it's why I think that, you know, it's 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 a kind of I don't know, I, I'm not an American, so I I think I can I can probably uh, sometimes misunderstand how things culturally for you guys are are considered maybe uh, politically incorrect or wrong to say, but that term that Paul uses, you know, slave, or if you want to think about being a slave to Christ, thinking, well, you know, if you think about like an indentured servant, right, I can't think of a better um a better description of the relationship that I have with Christ is so there's this indebted servant. Um, I'm completely in debt to Christ. I will always be mm-hmm. in debt to Christ. In fact, for the rest of eternity. And and it's not like I'm being trying to be a good Christian to pay off my debt. I can't pay off that debt. It's not possible, mm-hmm. right? And so what is the natural result of that? Well, I serve and I serve because mm-hmm. I serve him whom the angels serve, right? So if 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 Christ is love itself, um, and this idea that the universe is fundamentally made by love and for love, and the the primary moving force of the universe is love, how did they 
how did they twist this, James? How did they, mm-hmm. how did they get this to sound bad, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. the source of everything is love. And, and somehow we, we, we think it's wrong to be a servant to that. Um, I can't think of anything else to be a better servant of because you're going to be a servant of something. Um, so why not make it the ultimate expression of love? What kind of came up for me is this idea of um, freedom, right? This is a central theme in, you know, the American Revolution and kind of the American spirit. And it sees like in South Africa as well, born free, right? Free yeah. to do what, right? Free, free to do what? And, yeah. you know, I think you're 100% right. You, the, the slavery, not in its colloquial sense, but this, this way, you're, you're serving something, you're serving someone always, it's always the case, right? Yeah. So to being free to serve, serve whomever without that second piece of love, um, you know, it, you know, turns into, turns it into chaos, right? It's love with freedom that weaves together creation in a sense. And there's always a, a play, a play between the two, right? And I'm, you know, yoked to Christ. And to say that years ago, right, it would have been like, what do you mean? That's why would you you know, this ancient, you know, superstitious religion that is about power and controlling people. And because people are fearful of death, you're going to have a fear of God. What kind of God would, would you, would you fear? Or it's like, mm. well, the fear is, is like the way that you can not sin, right? You can't not sin, but the way that you can aim appropriately is to fear God, not that fear, fear the punishment, but you know, that having that implies or discloses a wisdom that helps you within your relationships and within your community. That 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 fear of God does. You know, it's it's yeah. and it and it's operates. Uh, you know, uh, and it's f- functional as well in in your life. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's that. I wanted to kind of place that there a bit. Um, yeah. Well. And yeah. No, one one more thing that I, I jotted down here because I I tend to when I have these I'll, I'll have my paper here just to jot down places because so much, so many things come up. I want kind of some some uh, quilting points to to just trigger my you know, my memory. And it seemed like another pattern that I perceived that I've perceived in my life. You said that you kind of rejected your, you know, your heritage when you were younger as one does. Right. And then you came back to it. That is the prodigal pattern. This is not a story in a book. It is a, it's a function and structure of how reality works. Right. Yes. If we can grok that, then we can see it in our lives and we can, you know, act accordingly. Um, now it's, it's not, um, again, the 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 uh, the, the paradoxes that come up they they're a mystery um but the psyche seems to be generating this idea as you have to solve the mystery um or you know that is your job is to solve the mystery and i think you can't solve it so usually trying to do it you get into this alienation that we that we all have kind of globally we're all alienated in a sense or feel alienation especially kind of in the states right because it's like I can't, what am I going to identify now? I used to, I, I can't identify. Now it's fascist to be proud of where you come from as a country. God has been ridiculed. You know, family unit isn't really, uh, you know, sanctified, you know, um, isn't really thought of like it was. So what is it that binds us together? And I think that's that's an open question um, of how to scale that or if you have to scale that. Um, but yeah, just some other thoughts there that popped up. Yeah, no, man. There's so much I could say. Um, maybe I could just talk about your point on freedom for a second. Um, I can't remember who said it, but I, I love this idea that freedom doesn't mean the freedom to do what we want. It means the freedom to do what we ought or the freedom to do what we should. 
So um, you could think of like if you're sitting at a dinner table and you're learning a new language, like let's just say French, and there's people at the table who have been, have been speaking French their whole life. And they're, they're completely free in that sense. They can just talk, they can let go, they can fully describe and encapsulate their feelings and their ideas into words. And you, due to your, your lack of ability, just aren't as free as them. And you're going to feel, you're going to feel that. You're going to feel like you're limited in some way. But then the more you invest in that skill and the better you get at it, the more free you're going to become to speak French freely. And in the same way, like maybe you have been so embroiled in vices for so long that you're just not free to make the good virtuous choice, or at least you've, you've, you've kind of, you're so caved in on yourself, right? Which is, I think, Augustine's description of sin. Um, you're caved all, all around you on all sides is you, you know, you're, you're caved in on that. And it's, it's like, okay, um, I'm, I'm not free. I'm, I'm stuck by my own devices. And so I'm only truly free once I have the ability to willingly choose to exercise virtue. And the only way I'm going to get there is by beginning to work through it and actually submitting and acknowledging the fact that I actually can't do it by my own power. I need, I need a savior. So that's one point I wanted to make just on the freedom uh, point uh, the point you made were very interesting, and then um, there's this beautiful song by Kansas. I'm sure you you know about it. Carry on, my wayward son. Mm-hmm. Um, my favorite line in that song is where he says something along the lines of, "I'm going to paraphrase, um, masquerading as a man with a reason. My charade is the event of the season, and if I think that I'm a wise man, then surely that means that I don't know." And again, it comes back to this idea of limited knowledge. I actually don't know what wisdom is. I, 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 I acquiesce and I serve because I'm just clueless. I can't understand how, and, and the Bible frames, you know, in the book of Proverbs, wisdom is very much something that is external to you. It's very much not a muscle that you exercise. It's something that you have to reach out for and ask for and it will be given unto you right so there's this there's this this kind of there's implicit this idea that there are realities outside of you and when we talk about um, maybe psychedelics a little bit later i think both of us will will have i i i I don't know your full background in that area but i'm i'm almost certain you had a shift where you went from you 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 sort of realized oh uh, it's no longer just me the world and reality doesn't end with my perception and that breakthrough point of realizing that there's things outside of yourself wisdom being a good example is actually where you begin seeing the objective world as opposed to seeing everything as just subjective so <laughs> those are just some points on what you just said um what do you think of those? What do you think of those points? Anything you want to add? Yeah, I wrote down, or this kind of stood out to me from the from the Joe video again, right? Uh, you know Guns N' Roses, right? So oh. their album in the 90s was called Use Your Illusion. Use mm-hmm. Your Illusion 1 and Use Your Illusion 2. And uh, in the part in the video, the loneliness, the loneliness of God and this idea of, you know, the Eastern kind of idea of it's all an illusion anyways. And I, I thought that 
for a long time. And that was sort of comforting because it's like, oh, whatever. It's, it's all an illusion anyways. It's all Maya. It's all play. Yes. Yes. Uh, so what is this illusion? What is the nature of the illusion? Where does it come from? And, and to ask that question, you know, uh, I, th I think is that, that that psychedelics kind of opened that up. Right. Because that illusion that that, you know, experiencing broader realities is going to be filtered through your consciousness and your consciousness is uh, is is colored by your sins, by your virtues and your vices. Right. And the more the more you open your heart, you clean your heart, the more you do the ascetic work, the more free you are to see reality. Yes. And, and, and it's, and it, it's very interesting to think of this within the, the argument or the, the divide between free will and determinism, because it's a both and thing, like you said in the video, we are determined, right? Because we have habits, we're habitual creatures and rituals, whether they're addictions or whatever it may be. And those habits build our identity, right? But yeah. To the extent that we can uh, do the work, right, to repent and have metanoia, I think free will is a spectrum, right? You have some of it, you don't have a lot of it, and you can get more of it. The more you get, it discloses re mm -hmm. the real reality to you. So it's like this interplay of, of doing the work of, of repenting, of continuously sinning and, 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 and kind of uh, finding your mark again. In doing so, it discloses the, the objective reality which is there. It is there, mm. right? But it's. I think there's layers to it, and the more that you work, and the, and the more that you know, you kind of work through your relationship with Christ, the more reality reveals itself to you. Yeah. And then you can test that by, like, when when the pandemic was in full form. It's when I started my channel. Um, you know, I was I was praying a lot. I was really found my Orthodox faith again after 20 years of of kind of being an apostate, just coming out of the the psychedelic, you know, kind of era of my life. Um, which absolutely opened me up to considering uh, considering that there is more than me, right? And then yeah. that turned into, oh, there's um, like really more than me. I got, got into the idea of multiple planets with different species on them and aliens, and some of them are more advanced. And when we break into the DMT space, what what really is that space? I started thinking, oh, that's a it's not a hallucination. The DMT space isn't located between the firing neurons in my brain. That's not where this is. You're, it's more something like you're tuning into something, right? Some other dimension or what it may be. And then you can take your heroic dose or, or do whatever it is and you'll get into those spaces. But those spaces are colored by your level of consciousness, by your, uh, it'll really disclose to you where you need to do the work, right? Because the way that things show up, if you have a bad trip, right? Because you, you become kind of in these self-defeating loops. But it shows, it discloses, it reveals things in your life. And I don't know if I would have, I don't know if I would have found my way back to the Orthodox faith without going through that, which looked like a mental break from the outside. And I almost lost my family. I quit my six-figure job to start teaching meditation and healing and stuff like that. Wow. I, I really thought that I was going to, uh, I built a, a business called Trinity Energy Works where I wow. was going to teach. And I did teach Qigong, Nagong, which is a type of meditation. Okay. Um, but also hands-on healing, right? Where I would have clients and they'd come wow. and I'd, I'd do Reiki on them. And I was like, man, I want to go travel the world and, and give, uh, you know, uh, sessions and groups of people. And I thought it was so, uh, so helpful for humanity. I was just going to share, you know, these insights with humanity, but I was just inflating my ego. It yes. was getting worse. I thought it was getting better. I thought I'm doing it for others, but no. And when that popped, yeah. uh, you know, what was left was Christ. You know, when that yes. popped, I was like, oh, okay. And that was, I remember telling my wife, I'm like, um, 
I'm going to spend the rest of my life studying the Bible. She's like, what? I said this like three years ago. <laughs> yes. I'm yes. like, yeah, that's as, as shocking as, uh, as, as, uh, as it sounds to you. It sounds to me um, because, you know, mm-hmm. my background's in philosophy and, and you know, I uh, got a degree in philosophy and really in, in French psychoanalysis and postmodernism. To go from mm-hmm. there to Christ is the truth and the truth is a person is a, uh, is a leap. And I think those psychedelics did something. I don't know. It probably would have happened without them. I don't know. Um, but it could have gone the other way. And I've seen it go the other way. And I've seen people get into things where you're so sure that it's so good because you're getting all these insights, I, even meeting interdimensional beings and having conversations with them and, and all this, this whacked out stuff, right? It's like, yeah, be mindful of entering those spaces. So I tell people that are doing psychedelics now, be mindful of, of uh, pursuing that line. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that guys that have a background like ours, and it's the same with... Uh, uh, Patrick on Church of the Eternal Logos, who we've, we've we've actually both spoken to, he's a great guy, and he 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 and I, the first time we spoke, we 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 talked about this, and I think one of our kind of challenges or something that we're going to be thinking about for the rest of our lives is what you just described: is where do the psychedelics actually fit in? And uh, sometimes it can be more anxiety-inducing to talk about these things with with fellow Christians, because you don't want to sound like you're promoting it. Um, but you also don't want to be disingenuous and say, oh, they had no effect on me at all, um, because that would just be a lie. Um, I can completely, I completely resonate with with the point that you don't know if you would be where you are today if it wasn't for those experiences. And, um, and and I mean that specifically, right? You don't know if you would be a Christian today or if you would have this relationship with Christ or even if you would fully be able to appreciate what that means because of the experiences you had. The way I've kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, the way I've kind of reconciled it with myself is I just, I, I always say, and I've said this in a few other podcasts, but um, I think for every one or two guys that gets out of that, I think there's eight or nine guys that don't. And I have many friends who, are still very much there. So I've always viewed it as God coming into that situation and pulling me out, right? Uh, before I led myself to destruction. And I think that that, it, that relates to the ego because um, I also I also noticed within myself, I've, I've always been very attracted to the wizard archetype. I've always loved the idea of this wise old man smoking a pipe, giving advice. And just from the outside, seeming to have everything figured out and having everything together, and there's this, there was this desire within myself to kind of be that, to kind of create this impression of a sage, you know, when I'm with people and everyone's taking something, to be sitting in a big circle and kind of be leading the conversation and telling yourself that, oh, I'm, I'm actually helping these people. I, I've seen things that they haven't fully articulated yet, and I can articulate it better, and I've read more, and I'm more studied, and they're coming from the outside, but I've I've also got this philosophical background, and I've also got uh, all this other work, and I'm watching like 50 YouTube videos a day, so what do you know, right? And it's so egotistical. It's so prideful. And I think even Carl Jung talks about this danger of inflation, of an encounter with the self, whether you have that you know, 
um, if you have that with psychedelics. And of course, the term self there is ambiguous. Um, people are going to understand that in different ways. But that encounter with the self can make can convince you that yourself is Atman is Brahman. Right. The individual consciousness is the universal consciousness. And then as a consequence, everything is mind. Um, really, I, I really I think I think it boils down to that. Um, and even the term mind is, you know, you kind of dispense with it. And as a consequence, everything is me. Everything's about me. I literally become the, the complete center of the universe. I mean, I can't think of anything more prideful, but I don't want to lambast that view because um you know, I'm trying to be charitable, but that was my experience with it. And I know that there's people who have a completely different experience with with um, maybe Buddhism and that philosophy. And they'll say I'm kind of, you know, I'm, I'm giving too much of a surface level. That is That was my experience. It was surface level. Um, I never really uh, understood that these... These ideas I have, these kind of philosophies that are guiding me are completely broken. They're, 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 they're disjointed and they're fragmented. Um, when you find Christianity, it's almost like it's like you've been stepping on stepping stones your whole life, and then finally you're on solid ground for the first time. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to add that, man. I can completely relate to what you said about uh <laughs> you know, would I be where I am today if it wasn't for that experience? Yeah, it seems like uh, so mind is heaven, right? So um, all is mind. You realize you're in heaven. And then at the same time, you realize that you are God, not, you know, you are God. I, uh, you know, I am God. And that would be lame if God was just your little enclosed thing. But yeah. that is the, the the pattern of the fall. It's the pattern of the fall. You realize you're in heaven in this kingdom and then you realize you're God. Right. And you're like, oh, and that's so inflating. Right. Yeah. So, and then yeah. and when you to fall, like when the bubble bursts. Right. You know, it's you're falling. Right. So Christ is there with his hand out. Right. And that's like hitting rock bottom of, of an attic. You know, when they when they hit rock bottom, you know, that's they've they've realized that they're fallen. Right. And in doing so, um, you know, you have to. And that's where the change happens. Right. It's like. Terrence McKenna would say, uh, you got to kill your, your ego isn't your amigo. You got to kill your ego. You don't kill your ego. You transfigure your ego. You yes. know, Christ is yes. transfigure you. That means that you are uh, in relationship with God, but you are not God. But you are, you know, loved like uh, like a parent-child relationship. How much do you love your kids? That's a fractal, slower slice of the love God has for us. Yeah. And in doing so, then you have to look at all of the uh, the prohibitions of how to live your life. And if you start coming to that realization that God is love, I have a relationship with him, and you're like, oh, I have all this sin in my life, right? And that is where uh, you realize that you're fallen, right? Mm -hmm. That you're not the God, you know? And then from there, that's where your the Christian journey really started for me of kind of uh, getting up from, from being fallen best as I can and continuously falling. Um, but a question that I asked David Patrick Henry was because he was really, you know, obviously heavily into the, the psychedelic. He had that YouTube channel. Yeah. Where, uh, I, I watched it a few times before, you know, he had the Church of the Eternal Logos. And I asked him this question, and I'll ask you as well. How do you know that this isn't another ideology that you're trapped in and so sure of, like you were before? And this is a question I ask myself. Like, how do you know that you're not just in another ideology? And then five years from now, you're going to be looking back and be like, 
oh, I can't believe I thought X, Y, and Z. Now this is the thing. And all of a sudden you're trapped in this thing again, not seeing it as an ideology. How do we know that? You know, symbolism, for instance, and I asked Jonathan Peugeot this question, how do you know it's not just another ideology? And I don't know that there's an answer for that, but I wonder what you think. It's a really, really good question. Um, in some ways, it's it's almost like, how do I know that my capacity to reason and my capacity to uh, understand the world around me is accurate? So on mm -hmm. like a deeper level, it's like, well, how do I know that anything that I think now is actually true? Uh, maybe I get really into playing the guitar and I think I'm just going to do this for the rest of my life. And then three months later, you completely drop it and you've got something else. You're like, this, this is this is the new thing and I'm going to just love this. And, and your reason and your experiences and your emotions are all lining up perfectly and they're all telling you this is the thing. And then it's not. And then you think, well, is it my is it my capacity or my my capacity to reason is that maybe at fault here maybe i should hate reason maybe reason is betraying me so i think in a way there's like almost like a lower step you can take than just the ideology itself it's like what system am i using to determine if this is something that is going to be applicable for me in the rest of my life and i think in terms of um, Christianity, I think it all comes down to the fruits, really. And I, I, th I know that word fruit can sometimes seem frivolous, like, oh, it's just benefits, but that's not, not really what I mean. I think it's fruits in even your relationship to how you reason with things. Um, so it's not like Christianity is not, to me, another brick in the wall of my life. It's kind mm -hmm. of like, oh, hold on, the wall of my life is built on something, and it's the realization of the foundation upon which everything else is, is built. Christianity doesn't, uh, in, in, in other words, I could say that it's not that um, I don't have to think anymore. Oh, I just accept dogmas and I don't think. It's uh, No, no, it's I ha now have scaffolding and I have structure in which to think that helps me understand the experiences I'm going through and helps me make sense of everything else. And I, I'm, I, I never get it right, but it's, it's C.S. Lewis says it, says it perfectly. It's like, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun, not just because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And it's, it's just like that. Every other ideology or every other habit um, or every other um, worldview I had at some point is all reconciled within Christianity. All the elements of truth I found within Buddhism, all the elements of truth I found within Hinduism, I can see those as uh, inklings or kind of, you know, I almost imagine God writing the Bible and all this ink is splattering around on all these other pages and these spot, these little blotches of truth are hitting all these other areas and people are reading those. Uh, but really the, the core ink is in the center, right? So I, I had fragments on the edges and now I, f I, f I finally found the center point. So none of the other viewpoints I had ever reconciled everything, but Christianity does. That would be my answer. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, beautiful. I mean, likewise, me too. And and, and uh, it's hard to communicate that to others, right? And and yeah. when you're talking about, <laughs> yes. you find this, you find these new uh, things that capture your attention. And I just think when that happens in my life and my family's like, and I'm like, tell them about it. I'm so excited. They're like, yeah, okay, you know, it's gonna be three months, and then uh, that goes by the wayside, and I got to put it in the you know in the garage or whatever it is, even with ideas. So when I was when I've had this realization with with Christianity, my wife just saw me go through, uh, you know, what I did when after, after having a spiritual awakening and trying to tell everybody and become a 
traditional Chinese medicine practitioner and healing by hands and all this stuff and yeah. and psychedelics. So I was, uh, you know, and I, I think and I think that was well said. And another way that determines uh, if I'm not in this ideology state, right? Because you can make ideology out of Orthodox Christianity. Ideal, it's just a structure of the world. It's a structure mm-hmm. of reality that will capture your attention. And you can make uh, anything an ideology. But I think, again, you have to go back to the nature of the relationships of, between you and those closest to you. And how are those doing? I think those are the fruits, right? Yeah. Fruit is uh, trees, uh, you know, plants, they fruit. That's what they do, right? That's how they incorporate heaven and earth. And that's how you can tell if they're uh, incorporating heaven and earth appropriately is by the quality of the fruits, right? Yes. We, our fruits are ideas in our relationships. So you can determine the quality if your practice is accurate, to the to the extent that your practice is accurate, you can look at the the feedback from the actual fruits in your life. And something that really was reflected on this is through the pandemic when I was making decisions for me and my family. You can look back to say, you know, uh, you can look to see if the algorithm is working appropriately. Your heart, mind, you know, the 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 spiritual algorithm. Um, and I think yeah. it it gives you ability to uh, thinking as we think rationally, logically is, is a lower slice of a super rationality, you know, in the Orthodox call it the noose noose. And it's very similar to a, a Taoist um, conception of this heart mind. This, I think it's mm. the um, Ming in Taoism. Okay. So it's this relationship between the heart and the mind that allows you to perceive and, and kind of accurately reflect on reality. And it's, it, it's covered over like in Buddhism, you know, they say you need to polish, polish the mirror. Right. Yeah. In Christian practice, it's ascetic, asceticism, prayer, fasting, following, you know, uh, and, and taking the sacraments and, and Catholicism as well. Right. So it's yeah. those are the things that you do to to uh, keep the algorithm working appropriately. And then when you make predictions in your life and you can look back and you have to look back and see, oh, was I thinking clearly? Was I accurate there? And if you are in the fruits and the relationships are getting stronger, no matter what's happening in the world. Right. That will give you, you know, the, the hope and. Um, you know, so I think it's, uh, it's very, uh, there's a practical aspect to it that I think we keep coming back to. That's, uh, that's, that's interesting. Um, so yeah, I don't know if you wanted to touch on, um, uh, you're in the corporate world as well. I, I am as well. So about managing being and what it's like being in the, the corporate world where you're from and how you balance that with family life and creating content. Yeah. So, um, I like to view existential delight as more than just a channel, um, although it is primarily at the moment a YouTube channel, but there is a website and I am trying to expand it. But it's effectively just the name of my mission or my my kind of guiding principle to try and be the opposite of an existential crisis, to give people mm-hmm. hope uh, uh, through the videos I make. Um, so I don't view... I, I, tr- I tend not to view existential delight through the frame of work-life balance. I view it as the work of my life balance, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. So it's a priority, but it's not priority number one or even number two. Priority one is God. Priority two is family. Priority three is my main job because that's what keeps the lights on when, when, when they're on. <laughs> um, <laughs> and existential delight is lost. So I actually only upload about one video a month, probably on average. Um, and that's just because I don't have the the time. 
um, and I, I I I I have to make sure that I'm I'm excelling at work primarily. But here and there I do get free time, and we can maybe talk about this a little bit. But I find I'm I I cherish time a lot more since becoming a dad because it's so much more limited. Uh, so now you know. Uh, right here now, it's 10 o'clock at night, and uh, my f- my family's asleep, right? So it's like I've scheduled things this way so that I could do this. But that doesn't mean that the whole day I was just sitting and working on the channel, right? The whole day was dedicated to them, and now I have my time for the channel. So there is very much a practical sense in which you have to organize your time. You have to make arrangements. So that's one element, the kind of just practical. And then in terms of maintaining healthy relationships, um, I think it mostly comes back to being a good communicator. And I think that comes back to being a good listener. Um, I work in corporate training. So I, I, I do consulting where I'll basically visit a company. I'll spend time with the staff. I'll see how they do things. And then I'll cater a course to their needs. So I'll give the managers management training. I'll give the employees customer service training, sales training, all the rest. And I can tell you that Communication is the biggest problem everywhere. It's it's the root cause of all of our problems within organizations because it's the root cause of all of our problems in in uh, relationships. Uh, obviously, the root root cause is sin, but yeah, just for the sake of this. So, um, I would say that you know, making time to just listen to my wife, making time to listen and to observe my daughter. Um, she's still very young. She's only ten months now, so it's a lot of watching. And just making sure she doesn't walk into things <laughs> um, or stumble into things. And then um, for me, the the biggest piece of advice I could give on on imp- uh, managing that kind of those relationships, um, and this will just end off my point, is that if you want to be a better listener, uh, I think. I think we tend to want to solve other people's problems. And so when somebody comes to us with an issue and any, any, any guy who's been in a relationship, any husband will know this is true. Uh, his wife comes to him and she says, I've had a really rough day. Um, things are really difficult and we want to solve the problem. Stop talking to this person. This person is clearly mm-hmm. a bad influence on you. Just do this, do X, Y, Z. And we're trying to help. It's coming from a good place. But then, you know, she'll say something like, look, I, j- I just wanted you to listen. Right. Um, And this sounds familiar to most people. And it goes both ways. And then, well, what's the solution to that? Well, a good practice to implement that's improved pretty much every relationship, both personal and professional I'm in, is if somebody comes to you and they want to discuss something serious, ask that person, do you want advice or do you just want me to listen? Like, do you do you want advice or do you just want me to take it in? And very often people say, I just want someone to listen. I'll say, okay, hold on. Let me go get a cup of coffee. Let me get a pillow. Mm -hmm. Let me get comfortable. And let me just take it in. And the whole point of this conversation, I'm going to kind of go into this like it's an interview. I just want to know what you think. And it's very amazing because at some point, the person will actually ask you for advice because now your advice is actually informed and it has a good understanding of the full situation and how they feel within it. So if you allow yourself to contextualize them and what, what where they are, you can give more informed advice. But oftentimes we're working on a faulty, dirty uh, window that we're looking through and we can't really understand what they're in. So in terms of, to come back to your question, in terms of, you know, balancing things, my work is, work of my life, 
so I'm going to find time for it. I'm going to make it a priority. Um, family is is number one underneath God, obviously. So um, family takes me closer to God. God takes me closer to my family. And then uh, work is secondary in importance, but it's still very, very high up importance because it's what allows me to provide for my family. So I take it seriously. And then it's about maintaining those relationships. And if a, a company is relationships. So if you want to improve your experience at work, you have to look at your relationships immediately. That's, that is ground zero. That's where you begin. Um, and then it's a matter of becoming a better listener. If you simply listen more to people, People will speak to you more and they'll listen to what you have to say. A lot of people have this experience that, you know, when I speak, other people don't listen to me. But if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of the time, we're not really listening to what people think. We're just waiting for our turn to speak. And I think that's a common problem. And I think it has to do with cell phones because on a phone, it's just me, me, me. And then the other person, you know, one message comes in, okay, more me. And in a conversation, I can't just... <laughs> kind of do what I'm doing a little bit of now, which is just keep talking, right? There's a back and forth. Of course, with, with Zooms like this, I think this is a new skill we're all developing, right? Uh, interviewing through a, through a screen. But yeah, long answer to your question, but I wanted to do it justice. Um, let me know what you think of, of, of that. No, that was, I was awesome. And there was a lot that kind of came up um, of this, uh, of the ideas that you're putting forth there and like when you started talking about like i'm in leadership right so i um you know i work with uh leadership programs and leadership development i'm constantly reflecting on am i being a, a good boss am i being a good leader and mm -hmm. how do i know if i am and are my people thriving are they successful are they happy at work things like that so it's pretty interesting to talk about the the meta pattern when it comes to work and how that maybe would inform your your corporate uh, advising a leader how do they treat their people right because yes. if we look at the pattern right so look at the pattern of heaven and earth in terms of a corporation the term corporation has literally the word corpse in it right so it's a body right and that yes. body just like your individual body your family your community your government is governed by the meta pattern and that meta pattern is the relationship between heaven and earth heaven being the policies the dictates the leadership the culture that's driven by the, well, not the culture, the, um, you know, the governing rules, the way that the, you know, the VPs and, and the CEO and the C-suite, um, the, the rules that they're bringing out, their policies, their procedures, how you come to work, all of that, right, is the heaven aspect. It's the blueprint, right? You can think of it in terms of a football team, right? Heaven aspect in a football team is the game plan, right? Yeah. The heaven aspect at a corporation is the, um, uh, is the policies, the procedures, the mission, the vision, and the values, right? Those yes. goals, right? Yes. How do we know if that company or that organization is performing is how is it mediated through the people? The people are the earth element and they operationalize the heaven aspect. You know what I'm saying? Like the, the yeah. people are earth. So it'd be interesting to to reflect on um, how how we can, you know, if you incorporate your understanding of, of following Christ in the corporate world, because uh, that's a question that I, I, that's something that I consciously, mostly unconsciously, but consciously try to do as well. And the main thing, you're right, communication is the key, right? What is communication? It is the logos. It is the word, right? And the sin in communication is disclosed when you go into a corporate world or you're going to a, you know, if you go into a, a team and you can feel 
that there's tension within the team. You can feel that when you have a meeting that the thing that needs to be said is never said. You know, yes. so one of the things that I say is if there's the elephant in the room, shoot it immediately because then it's going to blow up to to big proportions. And um, the number one thing, and I have a list of the top, top five things that are most important for me in terms of leadership, and that is um, but the thing that gets in the way is empty speech. I, you know, you'll have a meeting when people are, are talking about the, the things that don't matter and the things that matter aren't being communicated because most people feel they get tra- it's it's like a fractal part of that ideology. You can get trapped in in ideology by when someone comes to you ask for advice. You already are anticipating what they're going to say and you already have a characterization of what their problem is and already have a solution canned in your head and you're so smart and ca- competent and capable you can't wait to share it. But you're not meeting the person there. You're meeting your idea of the person. You know, so it's how yeah. do you uh, you know, so I'd be interested to man. I know we have a few more minutes here, but do you? use this, your understanding of Christ when you're training leaders at potential companies? Absolutely. <laughs> yes, definitely. I can't not. I can't yeah. not, right? It's not always, it's not explicit though. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't hide it, but it's not explicit. Like I don't walk in there and say, okay, if you're not a Christian, please leave. You know, there's there's very much an emphasis on the values of the company. That's usually where I begin. So, um let me first say I also train leadership. Uh, leadership is one of the courses I I, I present uh, at work, and it's probably my favorite course. And uh, we talk about these different theories of leadership, right? So you've got like the great man theory, the trait theory, uh, contingency theory of leadership, and then you also get servant leadership, which I'll maybe touch on in a second, and uh, we can maybe explore that a little bit. So in terms of like uh, leadership, I, I always start with kind of vision, mission, and values. And uh, I'll give you a, just a brief summary of the way I explain this to, to, to my classes. I'll always say, okay, uh, what's the most important of these three? Which one, is, which one is the best? The vision, the mission, or the values? And it's a trick question. And some people say, okay, vision is most important. Because if you don't know where you're going, long-term goal, long-term vision, how are you going to get there? But other people say, no, well, the mission is most important because, well, okay, it's, it doesn't help if I know where I'm going, but I don't know what to do today in the short term that's going to get me one step closer to that long-term vision. And then other people say, no, well, values are the most important. What's interesting to notice is when I ask you that question, which of these three is the most important, you're already making a value judgment. I'm asking mm-hmm. you, which one of these three options do you think is the most valuable? And you're using your system of value to make that determination. So the values are fundamental. It's again, it's this idea. It's not another brick in the wall. It's the foundation upon which the wall is built. So which value is the most, which value do we have to have? Well, not to sound incredibly Christian, but to do so at the same time, we need honesty. I cannot operate in a working environment if I ask you to do something for me and you say it's done and you're lying. We just can't operate that way. Things will collapse. It might not happen immediately, but they completely will. And it doesn't end there because the sin kind of uh, starts manifesting itself in different ways. So once the honesty is gone, the next thing that goes is the trust because Mm -hmm. I can't build trust with somebody that I don't believe. And you can't build trust with somebody if you're if you're keeping secrets. That means you already don't trust that person. And then you have an inverse 
you have an inverse of communication. You have a, a sort of shadow side of communication that props its head up, which is gossip, which is negative communication that starts to emerge. And it's a consequence of that lack of trust, which is a consequence of that lack of honesty. So I tell clients, I'm not, I actually tell them, I'm not talking morality here, really. I mean, I'm, I'm being pr as practical as potatoes. You simply cannot work with people if you don't know if they're telling you the truth. And pretty much unanimously, I've never had somebody disagree with that. Everybody says, well, yeah, obviously. And, um, and so it's, it's obvious to people in a sense that that's what we need, right? So if you, if you want to be a good leader, you have to be honest with people. That's what's going to build trust. And that's what's going to reduce gossip in your team. Now, gossip is always going to be there, unfortunately. It doesn't mean you're a bad manager. It just means you're managing people, right? But there's a certain level of gossip that that where things become intolerable. And it's like you said, there's that tension in the room that you can feel. And it's probably manifested itself in gossip already, the core issue that's that's at the center. So um, so so values are really the the core, I, I would say, of leadership. And then, of course, to realize that you have to be the employee that you want your employees to be. You have to embody, again, we get to that idea of the body, I have, you have to embody heaven on earth within your team in that little microcosm. And you know what's interesting is you mentioned corporations is, is like the corpse and the body. Well, look at the word organization. Every company is, is essentially an organization because it's organized around a central principle. But the word organization comes from the word organon which I'm not sure if it's Greek or Latin, but it means organ. And look at mm -hmm. it, look at your own body, right? The various organs are doing various, very different things, but they all work in unison and they create a healthy body. And it's mm -hmm. the same with the company. If the various elements are all geared toward that central vision and that central goal and the various organs are playing their role, kidneys are doing what they do, the liver's doing what it does, HR is doing what it does, finance does what it does, then the organization, the body, the corporate is healthy. Mm -hmm. And that begins with where the real organs are, which is our individual relationships and the way we treat each other. So yeah, just to summarize, values are the foundation, honesty, builds trust, reduces gossip, be the employee you want your staff to be, and what you see in your team is what your team sees in you, and that is responsibility. That's why the manager gets paid more. Heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? So there's that responsibility and, and matching authority. As your propensity for personal risk increases, because now if the team fails, it's actually your fault because you're responsible for the team. As your propensity for, for that increases, as the company gives you more authority, there's also more reward that comes from that. But it must be matched by that responsibility. And that's also what keeps things healthy, which is something we could talk about as well, the kind of asymmetry between responsibility and, um, well, not asymmetry, but the kind of symmetry of of responsibility and risk, which we could maybe talk mm -hmm. about just now. But yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm going on and on, but that hopefully that answers your question. Yeah, no, very much. That, that was that was wonderful, and it brought up you know a lot of things. And um, I see it reflected in these these ideas. I, I wrestle with all the time being in a, in a leadership role. And the number one thing that's important for me and my company is servant leadership, and we talk about it all the time. And we just had new mission, vision, uh, and values um, that were laid out. And the number one value is tell the truth. So when wow. I saw them, that, that that's the case. I'm like, and I work in. So I work in uh, pediatric 
home health care. We provide care for a lot of times kids end of life at the end of life or kids with medically fragile conditions that are technology dependent. We provide the uh, the nurses that go and work in the home uh, and mm. are there with their families. So there's nothing more important than servant leadership in this capacity. And I absolutely agree the amount of authority and invested in someone as a leader has to be proportional to the amount of responsibility they have towards the people. And if it's not, things won't work out. Things will not work out. You know, and that's that's again how the, that the pattern manifests itself. It's not um, it's not a threat. It's just if you are not telling the truth or being mindful of, of being truthful with your people, that will eventually increase the instability, which leads to the lack of trust, which ultimately will make it at least an inhospitable work environment, if not, you know, kind of destroy the company kind of yeah. from within. Um, so it really seems that the, you know, the focus on the, the heaven aspect ultimately is this, the mission, the vision, and the values. That's the heaven aspect, you know, yeah. ultimately, because it's abstract and it's it's what's imbues the culture and the result of, of the... Um, the quality of the mission, the vision, and the values will be the fruits of that is the culture of the company, yeah. essentially. Yeah. It's such a it's such a beautiful fractal thing. You just said it perfectly. Like your body is is organized and it has organs that have responsibilities and duties to the other organs that they, they, they need to work together in order for your identity to take hold. Right? Corporations yeah. and organizations have an identity. That identity is determined by the nature of the relationships between the organs within that body. Like you said, HR, it's so cool to think of it like that. So you can think of it in your own home, the distribution of responsibilities, you know, the, the amount of care and concern you have as a father and the amount of support your kids give you, right? There's a there's a logic to it uh, as it applies to the workforce here. Uh, and every time I start to thinking of how we can apply these at the political level, whether it's local, municipal, state, national level, that's when things become, that, becomes too complex, too complex to consider. So I always go back, okay, I need to focus on my local environment, my family, my community, and build a community, right? And, yeah. and it ultimately comes down to love. You know, Christ, the, the two commandments, Christ made commandments, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself or love your neighbor as God loves you, all right? So that's how you should treat your employees. You know, yeah. your kids are a, a fractal you, being a father to kids is a fractal example of being uh, a leader in a company and a governor amongst people, right? And so this is that's good news. This is good news. That yeah. There is a right way to do things, and if you do them, and it's not like you have to do it my way or else. It's the structure is there. It's been revealed to us uh, uh, to to an extent, uh, and we need to take it seriously. But we're going the other way when you look at when you look at things globally. So I don't know, how do you wrestle with that, that, that tension there of like when you try to apply these solutions towards the broader perspective, it's like, oh, is everybody going to have this revelation, believe in Christ now? Is everybody going to see this pattern? Be like, oh, we've been, you know, the, the, the perverse incentives and the, the, the structures are so fallen that it's almost, um, they're going to disintegrate and they have to disintegrate, like because of the logic. Because of the logic, yeah, the, the things will reveal themselves and lay out in ways that are detrimental. That's why I see not it's not pessimism when Peugeot, Jonathan talks about, you know, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's what I tell people, too. It's going to yeah. get worse before it gets better. But it's the truth shining through that we need to uh, we need to observe and pay attention to, because 
as the truth shines through, as the logo shines through, the old structures will fall. And if we pay attention to the scaffolding of the falling old structures, we're going to fall with them. But if we can pay attention to the light coming through, because the light discloses the sin, you know, light discloses the sin. Sin is the, the disturbance in the pattern. And oh boy, there's this disturbance in, in all of the patterns. Um, so I, how do you deal with that tension of looking things globally and how bleak it seems and, and focusing on things locally? I think I deal with the tension precisely by focusing on things locally. Um, I think there's just things in your control and things that are not in your control. And I think it's it's knowing the differences is key. Um, if it's within your control and you can make a change, do it. And in some sense, that's that's more valuable than anything else you could probably do. Um, for me, uh, because I have a very public job, I'll, I'll train. You know, I'll often have 40 to 50 people in a class and I'll give maybe two to three classes a week. So I'm being exposed to South Africans from pretty much every walk of life, uh, every level on the on the company hierarchy. And so for me to just stand there and say these things, which are implicitly Christian, if not explicit, um, I mean, any everything we just said about vision, mission and values, I'm, I, a secular person would agree. Right. They might not phrase it in the same way, but it's 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 obviously true. Um, and so for me, that's how I feel like I make a difference because these people go back to their companies um, and I try and get them to take a little bit of that logos with them, um, even if it's just the way they slightly treat they, they treat a colleague slightly differently or they they uh, they they tell the truth when they might have not a, a few weeks prior and then getting just feedback from people. Uh, saying, you know, this course really helped me and uh, it really it, it made me think differently about the role I play within the company. And, you know, I kind of saw cut the company just as something I had to do. I didn't see it as something that I could help build. Uh, so changing that mindset for people on the local level is the way I feel right now with my means. I can have the biggest impact. Um, so just trying to do what I can do, I guess. And, um, and then not not being too hard on ourselves about not being able to fix all the problems in the world, right? Um, we're not we're not meant to fix all the problems in the world. We can't. Um, there's someone someone who's you know whose sandals were not fit to even tie who, who's responsible for that. But we can co-contribute to that in our own little way. We can sanctify our workspaces. We can sanctify our homes. We can sanctify our communities. Um, or even if not explicit, um, explicitly Christian, uh, you can deeply touch people through the logos. Because the logos is, you know, it's uh, you've said a few times now, James, um, about how it's it's not like okay, there's a right way to do things. Now you have to be on board. I've always, I, well, not always, but I I view the I don't view the Bible or the as just like a recommendation, I view it as a description. Like it's just describing how things are. So if 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 water is just wet, and and you want to go for a swim, but you want to remain dry, well, you just can't go for a swim. It's just it's just the script. The, the the very nature of the thing just doesn't permit what you want. Um, so I think in the same way, when you're living out that Christian life, somebody might not even be aware of the fact that you're that they're thinking in Christian terms, which is obviously true. Um, you know, most people in the West are thinking in I think Christian morality and they don't realize it. Um, 
but it's still the logos. It's still present. It's still affecting them and affecting other people in a positive way. And maybe some of them will realize, oh, wow, this is actually, I can go deeper than the, deeper than this. I can actually, you know, join a church, et cetera. But that's, that's how I reconcile it with myself. Uh, to be honest with you, I try not to beat myself up too much about, you know, not fixing everything. Um, I just think there's, there's, there's an element of knowing your place and knowing your limitations and allowing God to be God and asking him to help you do what you can in your little way. Because to us, uh, it might seem like our contributions to people are very small, but we have no idea how the things we say, the, the way we help people, the charity we show, we have no idea where that ends. We only get to see the beginning of that. We never get to see the end. And I don't think we will until we, until we die. Yeah, yeah. Um, well said. Thank you for sharing that. I, it, you know, what kind of uh, is coming to me now is this idea of what did Christ did not come and minister to the Pharisees, which you would think, right? He would come and, you know, he came and found fishermen, right? Yeah. Started helping them. So it is a local thing to do, right? I do believe that we are here to follow Christ, right? Not that we are, you know, uh, we are the Savior, but we are uh, a fractal part of his body. So what did yeah. he do? He came and administered to the to the fishermen and, and kind of following following that pattern. Um, there's one thing that I'd like to maybe uh, ask you to see if if you if um, you're interested in getting into it, um, and maybe this could be kind of our, our last topic. And it might be going a little bit backwards, but when you were talking with Jonathan, you uh, talked about an experience you had where there was a presence of of God or or being or forgot how you word it. And you said, I, I don't want to get into it now. And I don't know, you might not want to get into it in general. <laughs> it is, is, yeah. Or maybe can you speak to uh, what that the impact it had, if you, you know, or the phenomenology of it and what that, what that was yeah. like? Yeah, sure. I should say the reason I didn't want to get into it with Jonathan is because I, I felt like my, the, the time I had with him was so precious. I, I wanted mm -hmm. to talk as little as possible <laughs> yeah, and I wanted absolutely. to talk. Um, but yeah, I'm happy to go into it now. Um, yeah, so I was kind of living the whole new age life and doing all the things you do and, uh, you know, buying very, co very colorful, uh, ponchos and things to wear and living that life. And, um, I went to a, like a native American sweat lodge. And just remember I live in South Africa, right? So, you know, Americans talk about cultural appropriation. Uh, <laughs> this was, this was, this is just, uh, the, the most wild uh, thing I'd ever I'd ever done I'd ever been to, and um, it was it was really just um, it wasn't fundamentally psychedelic. I mean, it was just really like getting into this really really hot uh, little hut and then just breathing in steam and going outside and essentially a, a kind of sauna in 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 the woods, um, which sounds terrifying now that I say it out loud. But <laughs> let me let me just mention that one night I. Uh, the, the host gave me a mushroom and it was um, it was massive right and I I had it and we it started raining so we went inside of this house and we were just kind of sitting inside the house in the living room there's probably about 10 or 15 people uh, various different people I didn't know most of them I only knew one or two and I'm sitting there and the mushroom starts to kick in and I'm pretty certain it was more than five grams, right? So it's it was it was huge, James. I I don't know if I, I, it probably wasn't the wisest thing to have it. And then um, I'm sitting there, and 
at this point, I can't describe what happened in normal language. I have to speak mythologically, right? It felt as if um, I'd been standing my entire life and for the first time I was sitting down. And it looked as if in front of me, not that um, I was having a hallucination, but that I was realizing that reality was a hallucination. And the difference between those two is so key. It's it's not like, oh, I'm hallucinating something. Actually, I'm now realizing that everything is an illusion. This is how, this is, was the experience, the phenomenology mm-hmm. of it. And then it looked as if, uh, everything in my in my in, in front of my view kind of split in half and like a curtain unfurled itself revealing blinding light and what i can only describe is like heaven angels mm-hmm. and then this overwhelming sense of and this was a turning point for me an overwhelming sense of Oh, it's not all about me. Whatever that is, that's not me. That's not my mind. That's greater than my mind. And it was it was an intuitive understanding, right? It's not like I I reasoned this. It's just it's you just you, I just trusted it as as true mm-hmm. in the same way that you trust that when you breathe your next breath is going to be oxygen there. It just seemed patently obvious. Now, did that experience make me a Christian? No, absolutely not. But it was a a pebble in my shoe, a big pebble, Mm -hmm. a huge pebble, um, which suddenly made me think, okay, hold on. Um, I have to rethink my worldview because I've always been somebody that tends to think systematically and I can't just believe something without knowing how it fits into the bigger scheme. And so Mm -hmm. I needed to now go back and think about this. You know, how do I make sense of this? And then I would go to my kind of regulars, uh, McKenna and Watts, and um, actually read this book over here, which I which I grabbed for our conversation, True Hallucinations by McKenna, mm-hmm. and then I read The Archaic Revival, and then I read Alan Watts's autobiography, which is funny mm-hmm. enough. It's it's this one over here in my own way, which is funny enough. The book that made me lose my enchantment with Alan Watts. Uh, you'd think mm. that a guy's own autobiography would make you love him more, but it actually made me realize. Oh, this this is not the life I really want. Um, you saw the fruits. You know, he was an yeah. alcoholic late, and you saw the fruits yeah. in his autobiography. So, yeah, yeah, and, and it's him, and it's him writing. So mm. he's and there's a there's a there's a there's a chapter at the end of the chapter. I can't remember which one it is, but at the end of the chapter, he says, "I had a home, I had a wife, I had children, and I wanted none of it." Mm. And I remember reading that and going, "Well, I can't, I can't, I can't." agree with that like that just seems was he regretting it was he commenting on regretting that or saying that that he was you know i just went a different path and you know how what was his kind of thought on that um i'd be lying if i gave you like a a, a definitive answer because i don't remember exactly the the framing but my it's my sense in in talking about it was that it was the reason that it upset me was it was kind of like he effectively abandoned all of that to mm-hmm. go and live this life where he was you know, touring and 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 meeting all these people and kind of just being great in his own domain, but sacrificing all the things that I think are the things you want to sacrifice everything else for. Mm-hmm. And I just had this sudden sense of, uh, I don't want to model myself after this guy. 
Um, and so coming back into that experience, after that experience, coming back to McKenna and, and, and McKenna actually for the uh, McKenna, um, which I still I still really, really love McKenna. Like even now, mm -hmm. I, I think he was brilliant. I mean, he Me was too. he was incredible, right? I mean, Me too. I yeah. wish he was around today. We could just hear his his thoughts on things and and the conversations we're having today it would have been amazing. If can you imagine if he had a podcast? Oh my <laughs> that god, that would be yeah. incredible. I mean, as in terms of just oratory skills, speaking, amazing. Anyway, it's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I, I, when I read his stuff, I always read it in his voice. He's got a really particular voice and the way that, yes. we, you know, the, the self, uh, self dribbling machine elves and he's just a unique yes. perspective. And I, I agree with, with, uh, with you on that. Um, and again, this speaks to the pattern of not effacing prior interests, but putting them in their proper place and appreciating them for what they are. And I think that's, that's important. Um, I don't know if you've watched the, uh, the last video I made, uh, so I have this book, DMT Dialogues, Encounters with the Spirit Molecule, and it's got Rupert Sheldrake in there, and there's an article by Rick Strassman in the end, and it's entitled, uh, what is it called? I don't remember, but the way I reflected on it is the, the phenomenology, like the, the, what do we do about the DMT space when it comes to the Hebrew Bible? So that's what the deep that dive was. And I think there's so much there because when we look at the, the phenomenology of the, the psychedelic space, it's always couched in terms of Eastern, you know, Buddhist mysticism. But what, what, what can the psychedelic world, uh, if, how can we explore the psychedelic world in terms of the insights in the Bible, right? And then he goes into the, um, uh, the chapter from, uh, from Daniel and he talks about the, the way that um, uh, the chariot and the way that Things appeared. Was it Daniel or was it? Um, I can't remember. But you know, the wheels within wheels. And a lot of the imagery that people come back from DMT trips, and you know, Rick Strassman did that uh, intravenous DMT experiments in the mid '90s, where it's the only time the government allowed this particular scientist to bring people from all around and give them intravenous dimethyltryptamine doses, and the responses that he got back. He he uh, he published in his book. I think it's called the Spirit Molecule, but he was talking about how do we understand? That, you know, there's a lot of visual, multi-dimensional experiences of color and a lot of times beings and, and other things that we experience visually. But how can we think of psychedelics in terms of prophecy, the prophetic nature of the Bible? Uh, and I found it fascinating. I think there's a lot to be explored if we look at something like, uh, from my perspective, orthodoxy and the psychedelic experience, which is fraught. I mean, everybody on orthodox side would be like, oh, don't do that, don't get into that. And everybody on the psychedelic side is, what's the point with orthodoxy? What are you yeah. nuts? So, yeah. But uh, if orthodoxy or Christianity is the truth and the psychedelic realm is part of this truth, right? How can we explore deep uh, Christian stories with some of the insights we get from psychedelic experiences? But that would that would bring up a whole bunch of questions of, you know the use of psychedelics by Christians, right? Yeah. Which I don't, I don't know. Um, you know, I I advise against it, but it's like I advise from my experience. I don't advise against it. I just say be very mindful and careful because things will happen that you don't have a capacity to understand. And just like a child, you'll be in awe, right? And in that state, you could be either manipulated or manipulate yourself. Um, yeah. But I think might be interested to. To explore that sometime, uh, you know, uh, Christianity and the psychedelic experience. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a conversation that's that is going to. I think it's still it's still 
growing and I think it's going to hit a tipping point where it's going to be very much uh, a new avenue of common discussion, although it might already be there um, because there's a surprising amount of converts that come from the new age world. Um, guys, uh, or, or reverts, I should say. So guys, guys like us who are having these conversations and we're trying to kind of figure it out. And in, in, in a funny way, it's a very exclusionary discussion because I hate to say it, but if if you haven't done it, it's it's difficult to understand. I mean, it will sound like total gibberish, a lot of the things we're saying to somebody who hasn't done it, but somebody who has knows exactly what we're talking about. Um, and so in that way, the conversation is sort of self-limiting. Um, it kind of excludes by just by the nature of the conversation. But I think as time goes on, it's going to be talked about more as psychedelics become, for better or for worse, probably for worse, as they become more and more regularly embraced in kind of day-to-day life. Um, and, you know, I was thinking now as you, as you spoke, it's like, well, is that, are, are psychedelics 100% not part of God's creation? Well, no, of course not. They've, they've got to be at least 1%, <laughs> at, least some, at least some part of them as a, as, an, as, a, as a phenomenon has to be incorporated into the world in some way. Is it completely, is it completely, is, is it in itself completely evil? It's like, it's an interesting question. And <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't think so. I think that people yeah. can derive benefit from it, just like people derive. I mean, people can derive benefit from tobacco. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah. otherwise it wouldn't be so I, popular. I, 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 I'm with you, right? I don't know. I don't think it's it's inherently evil. And to bring in a trope from McKenna, or I think it was from Leary, once you know, or because Ram Das actually said, once you get the message, put down the phone. You know, yeah. once you get the message, yeah. put down the phone. Right? Psychedelics are a tool or, or a technology in themselves, right? I kind of think of them from a Christian sense, and you can actually experience a cherubim with the sword, right? Saying, uh, you know, access to heaven is limited for you human beings, right? And I think people taking psychedelics, looking to get spiritual experiences and having, you know, bad trips or even good trips, like getting smacked down by the cherubim, whoosh, you know, you, you, you know, you haven't purified yourself ultimately to get the knowledge they're seeking. So go back and do the work in a sense. So I think, I think it's uh, the, the I think the ideas and the kind of perspective of psychedelics as they emerge here in this in this new way will shift. Um, so I, and I think they are, are are useful tools. I mean, look what it what it's what they do for you know trauma um, yeah. it, trauma experiencers, soldiers that come back from war, heroin addicts that have tried everything. They take ibogaine and you know so. But also it, it's a double edged sword. So it's it's, a, it's that's why I don't, I, I don't uh, tell people not to do it, but just uh, it's your soul. Psychedelic means soul generating. You know, psyche delic, right? So mm. you are dabbling in. The spiritual realm, right? And uh, you know, the spiritual realm isn't evil in itself, right? But it's going to contain, if it's a fractal slice of what we have in in, in our world, it's going to contain good and evil, right? Yeah. Until you yeah. get, you know, I don't know that. Then that gets beyond above my pay grade to to go any <laughs> further on that topic. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, man, this is. I think we can do another another conversation uh, on Would so many to. different ways we we could have gone and, and could go. But I think this was uh, this was great, and I, pr- I appreciate your time. Likewise. I appreciate my kids who like, you know, at the beginning they were damning the door down, but I think my wife took them upstairs. So uh, I appreciate the time. Yeah. 
yeah, no, likewise, James. I, I, I really enjoy the conversation. And yeah, we should absolutely speak again. Um, we can we can go into much more topics. I feel like we just scratched the surface. Um, I've got a whole list show on my right of things I was going to ask you, but I never even got to it because the conversation was so nice.